the, both the kids too, they watch my thumbs and they know how to get on my phone. I've, I've changed it three or four different times and no matter what, it takes them about a week and they got it. I'm pretty sure they're, I'm pretty sure this is the, this is the shtick that I get set up on. They ask me some question about something I'm interested in, you know, some movie we've watched or, you know, some Bible questions. Dad, what's, you know, tell us about this. Oh, let me look it up. <laughs> and their greedy little eyes are absorbing it. <laughs> Oh, my. Well, let's go ahead and get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, we are on page 68 and page 69 in Dr. Scare's book, Christology. And we have been looking at the sacrificial death of Christ the vicarious satisfaction, again, just to be as basic as we can and define our terms, vicarious means in the place of, and satisfaction has the connotation that there's a, a debt or a payment or something owed, something that must be satisfied. So you have the satisfaction. So who pays that debt that we owe? Who satisfies uh, what we lack? Uh, and that answer is Christ in our place, thus the vicarious in our place satisfaction. And so we've been considering these things. We've been looking at the, some Old Testament texts in regard to this, Zechariah 13, 7, and Isaiah 53, of course, uh, verse 4 and verse 10. But that whole chapter is very important to this. We introduced last week... Um, this concept of the theories of atonement. And, you know, in an academic world, you don't have to be so guarded about that. But in, in a you know, kind of a pastoral wor world, a congregational world, we need to be careful because theory has a kind of pejorative connotation to it. And it also, as if the thing isn't real. And then again, we, d we discussed very briefly that problem you have when if, if, if everything's just simply a theory of the atonement, you end up not knowing anything about the thing itself. In fact, you end up denying that you can know anything about the thing itself, which is a terrible, terrible position to get into theologically. So with that out of the way, we're going to simply say this idea that uh, Christ bears our sins on the cross in our place. He is a sacrifice for sin. Um, he makes himself an offering for sin, um, to go back to the language of Isaiah 53.10. This is the teaching of the scriptures. This is the teaching of the Lutheran confessions uh, from, the, from the Augsburg Confession, from our very base confessional document, all the way through the rest. Now, if we go over to page 69, then, this should be where we left off. And one thing to keep in mind when you're considering the atonement of Christ and the meaning of what it is that Christ did on the cross, you have to keep in mind the entire backdrop of the Old Testament 
from Moses moving forward, the Old Covenant and the sacrificial system, which is ongoing right up into the point of Christ, and in fact continues, although those, you know, those sacrifices are not necessary after his once and for all sacrifice, that continues, that temple sacrifice continues until the year 70 when the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans and then it's, and then it's formally put away forever. So you, uh, in considering the cross, you have to consider the Old Testament background. And so that's what Scare is going to point out for us on page 69, halfway down. Sacrificial atonement for sins is the heart of Old Testament worship. Even before the inauguration of the Aaronic priesthood, Cain, Abel, Noah, and Abraham offered up sacrifices in which living animals were killed. The climax of the annual Passover celebration was the sacrifice and eating of the Paschal Lamb. Paul says that, quote, Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians 5-7. And in John chapter 19, verses 35 through 37, makes the same identification by applying to Jesus the Passover regulations against breaking the lamb's bones uh, from Exodus 12:46 that is John makes the comment that not one of Christ's bones were broken thus indicating i mean who cares about that why does that matter it matters because that was part of the legal requirement for the Old Testament Passover lambs, that not one of their bones would be broken. Otherwise, it's an invalid, it's not a Passover lamb, it's not a Passover sacrifice. And so the fact that Christ's bones are not broken, John points out, means he is the Paschal lamb. He is the Passover lamb. The temple, which was the focal point of Israel's worship, had sacrifice as its chief function. Though not all the sacrifices had restitution for sin as their purpose, some did. For example, the sacrifice offered by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Okay, the apology, that's the defense of the Augsburg Confession, kind of the, the next layer of confessional documents. The Apology classifies Old Testament sacrifices as either Eucharistic sacrifices, um, that is, of thanksgiving, or propitiatory sacrifices. Christ's death is classified as propitiatory since it, quote, is a work of satisfaction for guilt and punishment that reconciles God or placates His wrath or merits the forgiveness of sins for others. And that's Article 14 of the Apology, paragraph 19. <clears throat> so, what's going on there? Well, as our confessions define, in fact, as coincidence would have it, in our service earlier this morning, um, we did a reading from the Book of Concord, and it was this very section discussing the differences between a Eucharistic sacrifice and a propitiatory sacrifice. So, in the Old Testament, you see this. It's true in the New Testament. It's true even now that there is a sacrifice that takes away sins. That's a propitiatory sacrifice. That's the language of um, the death of an innocent for the guilty. And uh, then there are other sacrifices that don't take away sins. 
and those are the Eucharistic. Eucharist meaning thanksgiving. So the Eucharistic sacrifices, the thanksgiving sacrifices, they, those don't take any, away any sins. Those are acts and offerings that we give to God. I mean, sometimes this is a very, it's a very basic point, but maybe we lose a, a little bit of touch with this, that in, in sacrificing a, an animal or you know, flower or you know, something like that in a Eucharistic sacrifice, um, <clears throat> you're taking a monetary thing. It, it would, I mean, in some, in some respects, it's almost equivalent. It's almost equivalent to like taking out a, a $100 bill and burning it. You're losing value unto God. That's, that's what you're doing. That's what a sac- killing an animal is doing. Now, <coughs> it's true enough that parts of the animals were consumed and, and that kind of thing. But it, I think it benefits us to just contemplate for a minute what those sacrifices are. Um, the, the parallel to that in terms of like giving of our tithes into the offering plate it, the parallel to that is, okay, it's a sacrifice. I'm losing something financially, but I'm giving it unto God out of thanksgiving, out of Eucharist. It's a Eucharistic sacrifice, thanksgiving for what God has done to me. So God has blotted out my iniquities. God has cared for me in body and soul. Therefore, I give this unto him as thanksgiving. And ideally, this is the point. When you put the offering in the plate, it's given unto the Lord, and it's as if it's consumed by fire. Like, that's it. It's done. It's, it's now to the Lord's work. Uh, one of the most toxic things that happens in churches are where, pe- where people like give their offering and then try to, you know, try to look at that as now I've bought into pow- having power in the church or now I can influence things or if things aren't going the way I think they ought to go, maybe I'll withdraw my offering. Friends, this is, when this happens, it's just bluntly satanic. It's taking something that is to be done in a holy way unto the Lord period, and it's using it for manipulative and flat-out satanic, self-centered purposes. I say satanic because it reverses the very principle of, of what a Eucharistic sacrifice is. A Thanksgiving offering unto God is now turned into uh, a string attached so that you can get your way. So we want to we steer clear of all that. We want to give our offerings with a pure heart, whatever they are. And it doesn't need to just necessarily be money. I mean, the same thing is true with volunteering, etc. And in the list of and uh, the r- list of Eucharistic sacrifices that our confessions give, it's even things like preaching or teaching the gospel, um, giving praise to God, um, singing hymns, um, praying, helping and serving others, and then very beautifully, even suffering, just suffering in faithfulness. Now this is, I'm going to get off on a little bit of a tangent here, you'll have to forgive me, but this is an entire paradigm we've lost that if we are able to restore and see that it comes to us right from our Lutheran tradition, it all of a sudden make, gives, gives profound meaning to, meaning to those who suffer chronically. That the, the, when you suffer chronically, but do so with a glad and thankful heart unto God, that is a Eucharistic sacrifice. That is a sacrifice of thanksgiving unto God. Again, I'm not making this up. That is precisely what our confessions say. So sometimes as we're laying around in the, you know, convalescing in the hospital or at our homes or we can't get out or something like this, we get the idea of like, well, that's it. I'm useless. I'm not doing anything. And sometimes the, the pain or the medication or whatever is even such that we, we can't pray or we have a hard time praying. 
and then then it's just totally meaningless. You know, I'm just a, I'm just wasting here. No, if you if you suffer the affliction with a glad and joyful heart and faithfulness toward God, receiving it as a son receives discipline from his loving father, this is as our confession state a Eucharistic sacrifice, a, an offering of thanksgiving for what the Lord has done for us definitively in Christ Jesus. Okay, sorry for the digression on that, um, but it is this distinction between uh, propitiatory or Eucharistic sacrifice is very important, very important. Okay, uh, any thoughts or questions? Are we okay on that so far? Yeah? All right. Let's pick up then where we left off at the top of page 70. Hebrews describes Jesus as the high priest appointed by God who offered himself up as the sacrifice. So both high priest and sacrifice. Now the reference to high priest, Hebrews 5.10, the reference to him offering up himself as a sacrifice, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 27. We spoke last week. We'll have opportunity to speak again this week in all likelihood of folks who deny the atonement, who, who say that Christ on the cross was not a propitiatory sacrifice, was not taking away our sins, in order to do that, you basically have to page by page tear the book of Hebrews out from your Bible. Because this is one of the foundational principles of the book of Hebrews, is that Christ is both perfect high priest, thus there is no more Levitical priesthood necessary, and he is perfect sacrifice, thus there is no more sacrificial system necessary. And because he is the perfect and final high priest and the perfect and final sacrifice made once and for all, the old temple is completely unnecessary. Christ himself is our temple. This is literally the thesis of Hebrews. And so to deny that Christ is the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices, again, you may, you may as well tear Hebrews out of your scriptures. So, Scare continues, sacrifices initiated new beginnings. Abraham offers a sacrifice when the covenant is established, and Moses commemorates the Sinaitic revelation with a special sacrifice. Okay, so if you go back and look at what God did to Abraham, there's a sacrifice, and, and you know, when God makes his promise and covenant with Abraham, and then two, um, the Sinaitic revelation, the giving of the law on Sinai, um, that is accompanied by a sacrifice. And so sacrifice also marks these new beginnings, as Scare puts it. He continues, The religious concept of sacrifice was carried over into the ordinary life of the Jewish people, who were required to make restitution for wrongs. Killing an animal required a financial payment, and deliberate taking of life required death. Leviticus 24 18 through 21. In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant is the one who bears the griefs and sorrows of Israel and carries their iniquity in commenting on Isaiah 53:10, where the suffering servant makes his soul an offering for sin. The apology, the defense of the, book, uh, of the Augsburg Confession says of the Hebrew word asam, that it, quote, means a victim sacrificed for sins, end quote. 
two things being demonstrated. The scriptures plainly teach that Christ um, is an atoning sacrifice, that he bears the sins, the griefs, the sorrows, the iniquity of us all. And uh, then second point, that the apology uh, sees this and confesses this and even um, plainly defines a psalm as meaning a victim sacrificed for sins. And so, again, Scripture, Lutheran confessions teach these. To deny these things is to deny both of those. Scare continues, all of these Old Testament understandings provide the background for the simple New Testament assertion that, quote, Jesus died for sins, end quote. Old Testament propitiatory sacrifices were the means by which the Old Testament church was taught the means by which God would pay for their sins in the sacrificial death of a mediator between God and man. The promised, Genesis 3.15, Savior from sin and death, the, quote, one propitiatory sacrifice in the world, the death of Christ, as the epistle to the Hebrews teaches, chapter 10, verse 4, and that, end quote, and that from the Apology. So, um, let's, let's glance at Hebrews 10.4 quickly. It's worth, it's worth looking at. So I'll just start at the beginning of the, of the chapter, Hebrews 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Okay, so there's, there's like the first statement is that, the, is that the animal sacrifices of the law can't make anyone perfect. They can't propitiate and atone for all sins. The, the demonstration of this, by the way, is that they have to be done over and over and over and over again. So they're not perfect sacrifices. That's really the main point here to four. Verse two, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Okay. Well, what was the blood of bulls and goats for? And why does Leviticus say that it does take away sins? Well, precisely this way. It, it actually parallels. If you have a kind of a theological framework for how the sacraments in the New Testament work, you can actually just transpose that over the sacrifices and you do pretty well. Because in the same way that we would say baptism saves, well, baptism saves why? Because it connects you with Christ's death and resurrection. That's why it saves. His death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. Baptism saves immediately. Does that make sense? Well, the same thing is true for the Old Testament sacrifices. They don't forgive sins in and of themselves. That's precisely the author of Hebrews' point. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. 
Why? Well, in the first place, they're not human beings, so they can't make atonement for human sins. It's, it's an inferior life. It's an inferior blood. Okay? In what way can they be said to take away sins? When people trust that there is a taking away of sins, not on account of the sacrifices themselves, but on account of that sacrifice to which they point. That, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Um, so when, when God gives his son and his lamb um, to be slain, that then is the propitiation of sins. Baptism takes that and distributes it. So do the Old Testament sacrifices. They take that and distribute it. So it's not, as though, it's not as though baptism or the Lord's Supper are simply, hey, if you do these things, you're automatically in, even if you don't believe. Any more than in the Old Testament, if you just do the sacrifices, you're automatically forgiven and in, even if you don't believe. Both things are rejected by New Testament and Old Testament authors. The sacrifices, like the sacraments, are giving for faith, given for faith to bestow faith upon us, to strengthen faith, and to give our faith something to grasp hold of so that, hey, the blood of this animal slain points me to the blood of, of the lamb of the suffering servant who will be slain from an Old Testament perspective. Or from a New Testament perspective, the blood that comes on the altar that we Christians eat and drink for the forgiveness of our sins, that saves me because it is the true body and blood of Jesus given once and for all on the cross. So there's parallels here. Um, that, uh, that then shows us that there's an anticipation built into the Old Testament sacrificial system. There's already this sense in which it's not complete, it's not fulfilled. Who and how is this going to be fulfilled? And that, that then is answered definitively when John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb, not of the people, behold the Lamb of God, God is providing his lamb. This ties us into the Abraham Isaac story. God is providing his lamb and he will make perfect atonement. Yes? Yeah, I, I always like to go. Right. And the blood of that spotless lamb saved the life of the firstborn. Yes. It really happens. Yes, right. So the comment for those of you listening online and maybe not able to hear that was in regard to the original Passover, the blood of the lamb very much has a, a propitiatory or vicarious effect. If it's on the door, the angel of, of death truly passes over. If it's not on the door, if the lamb is not slain, uh, the firstborn is going to die. Yeah, so that would be, that would probably be a good example, or I mean, even though it's not taking place in the temple cultus proper, a good example of a propitiatory sacrifice. It, it covers the sins of the people therein. Yes? Yes, parallel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're different. So, so the question, um, for those of you tracking online, is I mentioned how uh, the, the sacraments and the sacrifices are similar and in many respects parallel, and you can kind of interchange your theological framework, that is how they connect with the cross of Jesus, you, and then how they, how they affect faith and how faith relies and trusts on them on the basis of Christ. 
that, that pattern, that template works and is effective. The question was, but are they, are they different? Are they distinct? To which the answer is, well, yes, most definitely. Um, in, this, in the same way that the old covenant, the, the slaying of the animals, the offering of grain, etc., is taken away, um, what, what was there, the propitiatory sacrifices, okay, the sacrifices that quote-unquote took away sins, pointed to the Christ who was to come. That is replaced, basically, by the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Christ sacrificed once and for all, now given and bestowed. So, the, so there's, the, there's the difference between where the propitiatory sacrifices go. Again, the Lord's Supper isn't making a propitiatory sacrifice. It's receiving the propitiatory sacrifice. Okay. You can actually, frankly, do the same thing with the Old Testament, that the sacrifices are instituted by God, provided by God. The priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, is provided by God. They're all doing the sacrificing. It's all God in and through these things. So even the, even the propitiatory sacrifices of the Old Testament are what we Lutherans would call divine service or grace or top-down action because, it is, again, it is God that's setting this whole thing up. Sometimes we get this idea that, well, if I'm doing the sacrifice, then it's my work to God. Um, like if I'm slaying the lamb, then that's me doing something, you know, for God, and since it's atonement, that I'm participating in my own atonement or my own propitiation of sins. Not at all. That's just not how, um, and this isn't the right time to go into it, but you can look at the Old Testament texts themselves in Exodus and uh, Deuteronomy, and you can probably also find the same in Leviticus, that spell this out, that this isn't, and the whole thing is premised upon God hosting. Here's my house the temple or the tabernacle. Here's my servants, my priests, whatever they do, I am doing. Here, by the way, are the lambs raised from your land that I am giving you. You bring them. I sacrifice them. I accept them as a sacrifice. I mean, the whole thing is God is driving all of the verbs and thus allowing his people with this inferior sacrifice, this blood of lambs, to stand before him and enjoy his holiness and presence. Now, again, you can find parallels, ways that they're, dis- that they're very distinct from the New Testament and ways that they uh, are exactly parallel uh, to the New Testament. Now, we mentioned propitiatory sacrifice. What about Eucharistic sacrifice? Well, the same thing. The Old Testament pr- prescribes certain Eucharistic sacrifices, Thanksgiving sacrifices, and those have been put away and they've been changed with those spiritual sacrifices that I was mentioning moments ago in the context of uh, the apology to the Lutheran confessions where the Eucharistic sacrifices are redefined. We're not, we're not offering doves or flour or whatever else it was that were the Eucharistic sacrifice of the Old Testament. We're offering instead uh, prayer and confession and worship and that, that kind of thing. Okay. So different, but very much parallel. The same sort of theological machinery works behind both. Does that, does that help? All right. Okay, let's, uh, that was a little bit of a, a leap off there on, what was it, Hebrews, and so, and the Old Testament, the Old Testament system. So, let's, let's pick up on page 70, I don't know what it is, it's probably about 10 lines down, right after, right after in the brackets, uh, 
in the parentheses Leviticus 24, 18 through 21. Let's just pick up there. In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant is the one who bears the, bears the griefs and sorrows of Israel. Wait a minute. Did I, get, did I get way too far back? Did we finish that paragraph? We did. We finished. Yes, because it was 10-4 that got us. Okay, we don't need to go back over that. My apologies. Uh, so, again, page 70, but just the new paragraph. The atonement is specifically located in the death of Jesus, but the work of atonement permeates all his life. Within and through his sufferings, the atonement, or the propitiatory sacrifice, is offered. The removing of demons and the healing of illnesses is seen by Matthew as a fulfillment of the substitutionary work of Isaiah's suffering servant. He has taken our sicknesses and carried our diseases. And if you look at Matthew 8, 17, it's just after Jesus has been casting out demons and healing the multitudes that Matthew makes this point, that this is to fulfill Isaiah 53, 4, he has taken our sicknesses and carried our diseases. That means, in effect, in order for Christ to take away the curse, which demonic possession and all sickness and illnesses are, in order for Christ to take away the curse, he's going to have to bear the curse. And that is done precisely and profoundly on the cross. Scare continues, though in other places, especially John's gospel, the miracles are the manifestation of God's glory in Jesus. Here Jesus heals because as the sin bearer, he has removed sin from mankind, and with sin he has taken away illnesses which are the result of sin. So he takes away sin and the illnesses which are the result of sin. This parallels the greeting of the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God, who carries the weight of this world's sins. Jesus not only carries sin, but also destroys its effects among men throughout his life. Yet the sacrificial offering is limited to the hour of the atonement. He leads, excuse me, yeah, does he say, is, yet the sacrificial offering is limited to the hour of the atonement. Okay. He leads a sacrificial life, but the sacrifice is accomplished in his death. Christ describes his body as the temple. In the Apology, Melanchthon depends heavily on the Old Testament and Hebrews for understanding Jesus' death as a propitiatory sacrifice. Luther, in the small catechism, makes much use of the notion of payment or redemption to explain the importance of Christ's death. This, by the way, is a tangent. I don't, I don't know why, but in some crosshairs I've seen this idea of Christ's death on the cross as a transaction, that language of transaction, um, people not liking that. But what on earth is, is the language of payment and the language of redemption, if not the language of transaction. I mean, if you're going to accept redemption, which is a thoroughly biblical word uh, and concept, then you have to accept transaction. So I don't, again, I think people are just looking for nits to pick. They don't like the cross as it is, and so they are constantly trying to unravel it. 
Redemption retains its etymological meaning of buying back. The sacrificial and payment understandings of the death of Jesus are basically the same, since Old Testament sacrifices carried with it the idea of restitution. The small catechism introduces the subject of the death of Jesus with the words, quote, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and his innocent sufferings and death, end quote. Here the catechism is clearly drawing on 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So again, what's the, what's the payment? The payment is not gold or silver, but the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot, which of course harkens back to the sacrificial language of the Old Testament. All these monetary explanations in connection with the death of Jesus originate in the attempt of Judas to rid himself of responsibility, first by returning the payment of the 30 pieces of silver, and then by taking his own life. The name given the field bought with silver is the field of blood because it is purchased, agorazo, uh, the, you know, agoraphobia, uh, you don't want to go in crowded places. The agora is the marketplace, always crowded. So agarazzo is the verbal form uh, to buy or to I buy or I purchase. So because it is purchased, agarazzo, with blood money, Matthew 27, 3 through 10. The evangelist is recording here more than the historical circumstances leading up to the death of the betrayer. He is setting up a backdrop against which the death as substitutionary payment is to be understood. The death of Jesus and not the 30 pieces of silver. Remember what Peter says, not by gold or silver? So the death of Jesus and not the 30 pieces of silver or the death of an ordinary man ransoms or purchases man from condemnation of his own sins. The concept of purchase used by Matthew to describe the transaction of the field of blood is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the death of Christ as a transaction. Christians have been purchased at a great price, 1 Corinthians 6.20. The 24 elders praise God as God's lamb, or excuse me, praise Christ as God's lamb who purchased men for God by his own blood, Revelation 5.9. So again, to deny the atonement is to tear Revelation 5.9, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, um, the small catechism, the apology, the Augustana, Isaiah 53, and so on. It's just to tear all these things, the book of Hebrews, just to tear it all out of your Bible. That's what you have to do if you're going to deny the atonement. It's literally everywhere in the scriptures. Okay, um, maybe before we flip the page, 
wonder where exactly. Oh, it's up at the top. So footnote five, which was all the way up at the top, is it's worth picking out a couple of uh, points here. <clears throat> so let's look down at the footnote in the bottom of 71. By ignoring this emphasis on Luther's theology, namely that even in the small catechism, of course Luther does this elsewhere, but in the small catechism he talks about purchasing, that Christ has purchased us not with gold or silver, but with his holy and precious blood, his innocent sufferings and death. By ignoring this emphasis in Luther's theology, uh, Gustav Aulen attempted to deny that the reformer held this view. So Alain is kind of one of the sources of the modern attempt to deny the, the atonement within the Lutheran camp. So Alain attempted to deny that the reformer held this view. His view was influential among Lutherans in America and provides support for those who do not view Christ's death as a propitiatory sacrifice. Alain's approach is suspect for several reasons. Before examining the New Testament evidence, he establishes his position from Irenaeus and other church fathers. In trying to establish his position as Luther's, he cites the small catechism, but leaves out the references to the purchase of the sinner, not by gold or silver, but with Christ's blood. Which is kind of like leaving out the main point of evidence, the only point of evidence in terms of what Luther uh, thinks about the atonement in his commentary on the uh, second article of the Creed in the small catechism. So, I mean, this is like kind of a, a laughable deceit here. But the attempt was basically made like this. So, when we get to the end of this chapter, if you remind me, I'll try to make comment on it. But you, in all the different theories or motifs of the atonement, three kind of emerge as the main ones. You have, you have the, the, the Anselmic motif, which is usually identical to um, what we've been talking about, the vicarious satisfaction or the vicarious atonement. Um, then you also have Christus Victor. So that is, um, that is Christ trampling death by death. That is Christ triumphing over sin by defeating it. You can hear the, the victor aspect of it. And this is all true and very good and very right. Um, crushing Satan under his heel and then crushing Satan under our heels as well. So that Christ is victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And in him we are victorious too. And that what you're seeing on the cross is also a, a, tr a great triumph and a great victory. Is As bizarre as that might be. Um, but that to be grasped by faith. So basically what Alin did was said that the church fathers tend toward the Christus victor. If we use these distinctions, at least at this point, between the vicarious and the Christus victor, the church fathers, including Irenaeus, who's rather foundational, tend toward the Christus victor. And then Alin's point is, so does Luther. Okay. Which, okay, but you're, we're not going to ignore the evidence. I mean, there's really nothing won or lost by the fact that Luther likes the Christus Victor. We all like the Christus Victor. The problem is in trying to uh, diminish the vicarious atonement so as then one can ultimately remove it, which is Allen's real project and uh, those who follow him. So, Scare continues just a little further in this footnote down at the bottom. It looks like 3-6, the seventh line down from the bottom in that, in that footnote. 
Allen's view has been repudiated by Mark Leinhard. Leinhard provides this from Luther, quote, he did not die in, in order to perish, but to give his life for our sins, to be, as Paul says, an expiation, hostia, for our sins. The will of God was that he be a victim. Reconciliation, uh, placatio, ransom, redemption, price for our sins. For the wrath of God could not be appeased or put off except by so great a victim, namely the Son of God, who could not sin. There was no other sacrifice by which God could be appeased other than this victim who gave his life. Okay, so again, if you spend any time in Luther, you're going to find this. You're going to find the vicarious atonement in Luther. That's the bottom line. And so, uh, Leinhard um, just puts this on paper for us. Okay, so... um, what you can see is that Alain and uh, the others who are shortly to be named who deny the vicarious atonement are really on shaky ground. I mean, the scriptures are against them, Luther's against them, the Lutheran confessions are against them. And, and on we go. And uh, as with all heresies, um, and it certainly is a heresy to deny the vicarious atonement for crying out loud, but with all heresies, the beauty along the way is you come to learn and understand more about the thing that you already confessed anyway as you defend against the error. So let's uh, continue very bottom of 71, the last sentence. This passage with its references to Christ, I'm talking about Revelation 5.4, God's Lamb who has purchased men by his own blood. This passage with its references to Christ as the Lamb and to his death as a purchase combines the ideas of sacrifice and payment. Highly significant in understanding the meaning of the death of Jesus as payment are his own words. So probably, and I don't know this for sure, but probably why Scare is just pounding on the concept of payment um, is because Gerhard Ferdi in, in his writings uh, very vitriolically against uh, the vicarious atonement often talks about the, uh, disparagingly of this payment idea as God wanting to be bought off or buying off God and just, you know, he tries to put it as crassly as possible. So Scare really pounding on the scriptural biblical concept here of payment, of being purchased not with gold or silver but with the precious blood. Or here in this argument, um, again, highly significant in understanding the meaning of the death of Jesus as payment are his own words in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, a ransom is a pay- if a ransom isn't a payment, what is it? <laughs> All right. So now Jesus himself saying that he gives his life as a ransom for many. The formula of Concord argues that the death of Jesus must be the death of God in order to give it divine worth. As explained above, the title Son of Man 
is used by Jesus to describe his divinity or deity during the state of humiliation. The Son of Man is the Son of God. Jesus also referred to himself as the slave, Matthew 20, 19, which is taken from the name of the suffering servant who makes his soul uh, in the Septuagint, that's what LXX means, the 70, the Septuagint, suke, that's soul, or which can also mean life. Uh, he makes his soul or life an offering for sin, Isaiah 53.10, a citation vital for the Apologies view of Christ's death as sacrifice. Jesus understands his life offered for sin as that of the Son of God. The concept of substitution, so when we say vicarious or substitutionary, we're essentially saying the same thing, in the place of. A substitute teacher is in the place of a real teacher. A vicar is in place in our system of the pastor. Uh, it's a vicarious or uh, substitutionary atonement. The concept of substitution is expressed by the Greek preposition anti. It's common meaning in both the Old and the New Testaments. Just so anti would mean like on behalf of or something might be how you translate it. Jesus, the Son of Man, the incarnate God in his state of humiliation, states that he offers his life in the place of many. Um, so, anti polon on behalf of many. Polon means many. The Reformed have argued for a limited atonement since the word many and not all is used here. This argument cannot stand for two reasons. In Hebrew idiom, many is not as exclusive as it is in English where many implies that some are not included. The phrase, many are called, means all are called. This is supported by 1 Timothy 2.6, where Christ Jesus is described in words clearly reminiscent of Matthew 20.28 20, as the one, quote, who gave himself as the ransom for all. God desires all men to be saved, all are called, he lays down his life for all, etc. And of course, buttressing this and backing this up, even if you don't buy the linguistic analysis, which you absolutely should, scarce right, but buttressing and backing this are even clearer statements, like, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, or he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. I mean, yeah. Or even the referent to the false teachers being purchased by his blood. So there's, there's countless other very clear places in Scripture we could point to to show that there's no contradiction between these passages and those. All right, 72, uh, the, the bottom full paragraph. Also, part of the same family of words connected with lutron is the noun apolutrosis, redemption, used by Paul to describe the death of Jesus as payment. 
Okay, so again, what Scare is doing here with Lutron and Apolutrosis is just the, the language of redemption and payment go hand in hand biblically. Redemption is brought about by the blood of Jesus, Ephesians 1.7. The justification of the sinner has its foundation in the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24. Now, again, for those of you following along online, we're not going to stop and take time to look these things up, but if, if you're one to really not believe in the atonement, you ought to do yourself a favor and just go look at Ephesians 1.7 and Romans 3.24. I mean, as well as the rest of these things that are being cited. There's tons of scripture being cited here, but you know, at bare minimum, do your, do your actual homework and go look from the text itself. All right, so six lines down. Used in the same context along with apolutrosis, redemption, in Romans 3.24 is the Greek word for propitiation, hilasterion, in Romans 3.25. God has redeemed the world in Christ whose death was a propitiation or propitiatory sacrifice for sins. A cognate Helasmos is used in 1 John 2.12, where Christ is described as the atoning sacrifice, the Helasmos, for the world's sins. The background for understanding Christ's death as sacrifice is the Old Testament sacrificial system, Exodus 32.30. Unlike in the Old Testament, sacrifice in the New Testament is never associated with animals, but only with the death of Jesus. Okay, so what's Scare's point? If you take the biblical language of apolutrosis, redemption, you'll see it used in identical manner to how the language of hilasterion and helasmos is used. Hilasterion and helasmos is the language of the temple cultus and of the temple sacrifices. Um, part of what's, you can see that in the, in the, the first word, uh, hilasterion, you can say hilast, and then hilasmos, you can hilas again. That language is the language of um, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant upon which the blood of the, uh, of the Lamb of Atonement on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that Lamb's blood is poured there on the hilasmos, on the covering um, in, in the Old Testament. And so to say that Jesus and that his blood are the halasmos, is to say that Jesus is um, the Lamb of Atonement and His blood is poured out on the mercy seat, thus God has mercy on us for the sake of His shed blood. That's the Hilasterian halasmos language and its close connection with apolutrosis, uh, we are redeemed. We who are not welcome in God's presence are redeemed, are bought and purchased so that now we are welcomed in His presence. All right, so that's just a really short riff and take on what Scare's trying to do there in that paragraph. Everybody okay so far, tracking along? All right, let's, let's press on just a little further. We're nearly out of time here, but we'll get a little bit more. The concept of Christ's death as sacrificial atonement is clearly expressed by Jesus in the words of, ins of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And by the way, I mean, this, this is just for my mileage. If you, if you sort of leave this and you're like, what's my connection to the vicarious atonement? What's my proof text? What's my elevator speech? What's the one thing I can just have in mind to whip out? 
I, you can't go wrong with the Lord's Supper. You can't go wrong with the words of institution. I'll let Scare do the work here. But if you have the words of institution, you have the vicarious atonement. All right. So, the concept of Christ's death as sacrificial atonement is clearly expressed by Jesus' words of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And I'll spare reading you all that Greek, because um, the quote's given. This is my blood. Uh, that's, by, that's the first ta-hemamu. Um, Taste diathekes, that's of the covenant. Diathekes is the covenant or testament. It doesn't really matter. Um, Ta peri polon, um, which is, uh, yeah, which is for all, uh, ek kunamenon, poured out, uh, for many for the forgiveness of sins is ice afesen hamartion, hamartion is sin, afesen is forgiveness, um, into the forgiveness of sins would be like, like a really wooden translation. So this is my blood of the covenant or testament which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 28. Why is Jesus' blood poured out? For the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that's the vicarious atonement. That's the vicarious atonement. Though blood, Scare writes, though blood as a bodily substance is equated with life, since for the Old Testament Jew, the life was in the blood, the word blood is more likely an actual usage in actual usage to mean a violent death abel's blood cries from the ground for retribution the blood on the door lintels signifies that a lamb has been sacrificed in place of the firstborn and the angel of death passes over the jews are responsible for the blood of the prophets and their descendants are responsible for Jesus' death and those of his followers. As they stand before Pilate, they voluntarily assume this responsibility, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. The poured out blood of the covenant, now given to the church as sacrament, points to the violent death of Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. Through his crucifixion, he enters into the Holy of Holies with his own blood as the atonement, Hebrews 9.12. The backdrop for the words of institution is the Old Testament covenant between God and Israel established through Moses. Um, just place a finger there. What, this may be a fairly obvious point, but it's a rather profound point, I think, in terms of shifting your thinking in a biblical and Lutheran way. When Jesus, Jesus takes the cup of his blood and says, this is the covenant, or this is the, the New Testament, the new covenant, as it's given outside of Matthew. Well, what's the Old Testament or the Old Covenant? The Sinaitic Testament, the Sinaitic Covenant. Okay, so it's the law. And that's the Old Testament, and that is ratified by the sprinkling of blood. So when the Sinaitic Testament or covenant is put in place, Moses takes the blood of bulls, you remember, and he sprinkles the people. Now Jesus is saying this is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood. 
So Moses sprinkled you with the blood of bulls. I am sprinkling you with my blood. And rather profoundly here, too, if you, were to, if you ask Jesus the question, you know, Jesus, what is the New Testament? And then you go looking through all the red letters for your answer. This is his answer. This cup is the New Testament. Full stop. It's not a set of documents. It's not a, it's not a change in time period. It's, it's not these things that we frequently think of it. The New Testament is his cup. The New Testament is the new covenant that's, that supersedes and transcends the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was merely a servant pointing to this new covenant, which is, again, his sacrificial death on the cross, his blood poured out for us in that cup for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's, I mean, that's precisely Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Okay. Now, I told you to put your finger there, and then in my excitement, I took my own finger off, so... Is it right after the Matthew 27 quote? Let his blood be upon us, or is it down further? Hebrews 9, 12. Everybody took their finger off. <laughs> Matthew 23. Okay. I'm looking at the wrong Matthew 23. Oh, well. As they stand before Pilate, I'm not finding that at all. Okay, well, I'm just going to have to take a stab at it. Sorry. Um, okay, there's the backdrop of the words of institution, the Old Testament covenant between God and Israel. Have we covered that part? As priest, Moses takes the blood of this. No, we haven't covered there. The backdrop for the words of institution is the Old Testament covenant between God and Israel established through Moses. As priest, Moses takes the blood of the sacrificed oxen and throws the first part on the altar and the other part he throws on the people as he cries, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. Through the sacrificial shedding of animal blood, God establishes his saving covenant with Israel. In a similar way, the shedding of Jesus' blood for the many, all of God's just demands for sacrifice are met, and he establishes a new relationship in which all the promises of forgiveness are realized and actually distributed by means of sacramental bread and wine. The church drinking the blood of this sacrifice receives the forgiveness of sin as the benefit of this sacrifice. The phrase, this is my blood of the covenant, may be paraphrased as, this is my blood which satisfies God's just demands for death. The word many, in the words of institution, poured out for many, has the same inclusive sense as in Matthew 20, 28. A parallel reference to the atonement as universal is John 6.51, where Jesus refers to himself as the bread which he will give as his flesh for the, for the world. Though only the followers of Jesus drink his blood, its effectiveness as atoning blood is cosmic, as it embraces all the world, that is, all people. The connection, with the, Lutheran the connection which the Lutheran confessions make between the Lord's Supper and Christology 
accurately reflects the New Testament witness that this sacrament is a revelation of Christ's work in the church. All right, so that takes us then to the top of page 74, which is a fine place for us to pick up next week. The Lord be with you.